the newsroom was we were pumped on that story because every day we wanted to find something new you know and, and keep the story alive that was former daytona beach news journal reporter lita longa talking to me about the still unsolved daytona serial killer case three women were slain during a two-month span nearly 12 years ago and it remains one of florida's highest profile cold cases that story and more are coming up on sun crime state i'm tony holt crime reporter for the daytona beach news journal Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the arrest last week of a Clearwater woman charged with practicing medicine without a license. Police said she would falsely diagnose clients with severe illnesses such as lupus and cancer and do so only by using a headset connected to a computer. Later, I will discuss the unsolved murders of three prostitutes who were fatally shot in late 2005 and early 2006. Police have said their murders were committed by the same suspect who used the same 40 caliber weapon for all three victims. In spite of DNA matches, the recovery of tire tracks, and the extensive work of several experienced investigators, the case remains unsolved. My special guest will be former crime reporter Lita Longa, as well as News Journal investigative reporter Seth Robbins. I'll also talk to a pair of local cold case investigators. Coming up, the sentencings of two ex-politicians convicted of wire fraud. U.S. District Judge Carlos Mendoza didn't hold back Friday before imposing a 13-month prison sentence for Florida representative and ex-Daytona Beach City Commissioner Dwayne Taylor. That came four days after a federal judge in Jacksonville sentenced former Congresswoman Corinne Brown to five years in prison for raising more than $800,000 for a sham charity. Unbeknownst to donors, Brown used the funds for personal expenses that included tickets to sporting events and a pop concert. News Journal legal reporter Frank Fernandez covered Taylor's trial. He reported that Mendoza told Taylor he had dishonored the state of Florida and gave fuel to those skeptics who questioned the integrity of politicians. As Taylor stood before Mendoza in a federal courtroom in Orlando, the judge told him, quote, This is a sad day for all of Florida, and certainly for those who believed in you. The 50-year-old Taylor was convicted August 31st of nine counts of wire fraud. He must report at 2 p.m. on January 10th to begin serving his federal sentence, which likely will be served in Coleman a low-security prison in Sumter County, located 30 miles south of Ocala. Once he is released from prison, Taylor will begin serving 18 months of supervised release and will be required to pay $62,000. He was ordered to do so in increments of $300 per month. 
Federal investigators said Taylor used the stolen funds to purchase meals, cable TV charges, and other personal expenses. But his biggest expenditure was a $13,000 bill for his wedding at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City. He attempted to cover up his crimes by making false entries in his campaign finance report, claiming he had paid $56,000 to a non-existent media consulting company. The judge pointed out how overwhelming the evidence was. Video surveillance actually showed Taylor withdrawing money from ATMs with his campaign debit card and depositing it into a personal account. Before becoming an elected official, Taylor was a Daytona Beach firefighter paramedic who retired with the rank of lieutenant. He served on the city commission from 2003 to 2008 and then served in the Florida House from 2008 to 2016. Term limits barred him from seeking re-election, so last year he ran for U.S. Congress but lost in the Democratic primary. Taylor did not speak to the media after he left the courtroom, and his attorney said an appeal was forthcoming. As for Brown, she was convicted in May on 18 criminal counts, including wire fraud and filing false tax returns. According to the New York Times, among the items she purchased with the stolen money were NFL tickets and a Beyonce concert. Brown served in Congress from 1993 to 2017. She lost her last re-election bid to Al Lawson. Brown was indicted weeks after her election loss. Her fake charity, One Door for Education, raised about $833,000, and donors were told the money would be used to pay for scholarships for less fortunate students and for computers to be supplied to schools. Brown's two accomplices, Ronnie Simmons, who was Brown's former chief of staff, and Carla Wiley, who founded the charity, pleaded guilty and received lighter sentences in exchange for testifying against Brown, who pleaded not guilty and went to trial. She is expected to report to prison no later than January 8th. According to the Florida Times Union, U.S. District Court Judge Timothy Corrigan criticized all three defendants, saying they were willing participants in a shameless conspiracy, adding their crimes were born out of entitlement and greed. Corrigan was particularly critical of Brown's statements to the media when the news broke about the investigation. She once said the FBI might have been able to prevent the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando had it not been so preoccupied with investigating her. Corrigan called that statement, quote, reprehensible. Coming up, the story of a Florida woman accused of practicing medicine without a license. Typically, the world of fake doctors is centered in Miami. But last week, a 59-year-old woman was arrested on a charge of practicing medicine without a license out of Clearwater. Veronica Zaitsevsky was booked Wednesday at the Pinellas County Jail and held on $200,000 bail.
According to Action News 13 out of Tampa, the investigation began in May when Zaitsevsky told undercover police detectives she ran a cash-only business and didn't accept health insurance. Police say she operated NLS Diagnostics inside an office building on Cleveland Street. Court documents showed she used a device that looked like a laptop computer with connecting headphones. An undercover detective signed up for treatment, put on the pair of headphones, and was told she was undergoing a scanning process. After an hour or so, Zaitsevsky printed the results. She told the detective she had lupus. She offered a quote of $2,000 for 10 treatments. An 11th treatment would be free. Here is Action News reporter Jill Solomon talking about what else authorities discovered. Officers noted the device she used looks similar to one they found on Amazon.com, selling for a few thousand dollars. Detectives say while they were in her office, they ran into a man who said he had a tumor and was receiving treatment. The detective made an appointment with Zaitsevsky on Wednesday, and that's when police arrested her. Salomon also reported that Zaitsevsky's attorney is arguing that she was practicing holistic medicine, which meant her charge should be voided. Police said the suspect advertised her business in Comline magazine, a publication associated with the Church of Scientology. Coming up, the story about the Daytona serial killer, who after 12 years still has not been caught. No one's been brought to justice on this case yet. A lot of forensics have been developed on the case, and I believe that one day this, uh, you know, the break will come. That was cold case investigator Al McAvoy, who told me the apprehension of the man responsible for the deaths of three prostitutes 12 years ago in Daytona Beach is still likely to happen. But the wait has baffled everyone affected by the case, the families of the victims, the Daytona Beach Police Department, and those who covered it. The body of the first victim was found December 26, 2005. The second victim was found January 14, 2006. The third was found February 24th of that year. After the news broke about the third victim, every local and national media outlet with a presence in Daytona reported that a serial killer was on the loose. Among those who extensively reported on the case was Lita Longa, who for years was a crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. She is now the media spokeswoman for the Daytona Beach Police Department. I think we were right in the middle of maybe spring break or it was coming up, and so that alone just, you know, drew the national media here. I mean, it drove. So, you know, we had, the, you know, we just had news that we had a serial killer, and then we had all these young people here partying, you know, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of young girls here, so there was a huge concern about that. The first victim was Laquita Gunther, a 45-year-old labor hall worker who was well-known in the bar scene in Daytona. She was killed Christmas Eve, and her nude body was found two days later in a tight alleyway along North Beach Street. She had been shot in the head. Here is Longa talking about Laquita. 
She has about five children. She was a, a woman that was actually feared on the street by by men because she was so tough. So it was it was uh, that's why people were kind of surprised when she was killed. Of course, she was killed. You know, she was shot, so she couldn't you know you can't fight a gun. But she was a feisty person. She was known on the street for being extremely feisty, and she would actually fight men, like actually get into fist fights with men and be physical if she had to be. But she was also very popular. There, there's a bar in the area, or there were two bars in the area that actually had her picture on the wall when she was killed because she was very she was very popular. She was real gregarious. Apparently, she you know she wasn't a bad person. She had a good heart, but she didn't you know let anybody take advantage of her and. She was known to be a thief as well, unfortunately, but she would steal from people uh, if she had to, and she and she was a known prostitute. You know, the night that she was killed, she was expected at a at her friend's house for uh, for Christmas Eve, and she didn't show up, obviously. So that friend now has her ashes, and you know that friend has vowed to see this case solved, and she goes every year and puts a wreath up where she where Laquita was found murdered and all that. So. Um, it's a it's a weird her her murder was a, was the strangest of all because she was in a crowded bar called Chubby's that no longer exists and then she went across the street to you know get with a John or whoever and nobody heard anything. Someone else's DNA in the form of semen was found on Laquita. The bullet that killed her came from a forty caliber Smith and Wesson. The second victim was Julie Green, a thirty four year old mother of four known by many as Sissy. Her body was found in a ditch along a dirt road near LPGA Boulevard. She, too, had DNA on her. You know, Julie Green had a lot of issues. Apparently, she had, you know, she had a drug addiction, and she was a prostitute as well. What I do remember Julie Green was that she, at one time, lived with her father in Port Orange, and they had a strained relationship. And I know that her kids and her the guy she had the children with i think living in the southeast somewhere the southeast united states of i want to say tennessee or one of those states and they missed her they missed her terribly but she you know they just couldn't i remember the, the, the man telling me on the phone that they couldn't do anything about her for her because she just you know she just didn't want help so it was one of those things where she kind of left the family and she came to florida and she Tried having a relationship with her dad, you know, you know, I guess being with her father in the sense, you know, having a relationship with him, but that didn't work, and her father has issues as well. And, and I believe that the night that she was killed, I was told by a former boyfriend of hers that she had gone to a phone booth, to a public phone booth. They still had phone booths in those days, and she had gone to make a call. And she was going to call her father because she had told her boyfriend, uh, I'm going to call my father. But when she, I guess as she was walking to that phone booth, through a public phone, she got picked up by somebody. And that was the last anybody saw her. And police believe that could have been her killer. Julie also was shot in the back of the head. Tire tracks were found that matched a 2003 Ford Taurus or Mercury Sable. The actual tires would later be found but her killer could not be traced to them. The third victim was 35-year-old Awana Patton. She was not thought to have done much prostitution, but detectives think she turned to it because she was destitute. 
He won a patent. Uh, she's kind of a mystery. She, like I said, she was a certified nursing assistant in one of these nursing homes in Port Orange. I know she has a brother that was an Orlando, is an Orlando police officer, as a matter of fact. I called him when she turned up dead, and he didn't want to talk about his sister. And uh, I don't know how she turned to prostitution. I just know that um, I believe they found her car in a parking lot. I guess somebody picked her up, but John picked her up, and she left, and I guess she wasn't seen after that, and her car remained in this parking lot, and that's, and they found her car, I guess, several days after her body was found, and she was found out on, off of Williamson Boulevard, behind some tree, by, behind like a, like some shrubs, and uh, two people were walking in that area, and they found the body, and they ran to a gas station, uh, and called the police from the gas station. Awana appeared to have put up a fight with her killer. Her car was found behind a speech therapy center off US-1 in an area known for drug and prostitution activity and a place where homeless people would frequently gather. News Journal investigative reporter Seth Robbins was covering crime for the paper at the time. The media jumped at the chance to give this string of slayings a serial killing designation. Here is Robbins telling me about how police didn't necessarily want the stories to be framed that way. If I remember correctly, they were loath to use the term serial killer, uh, obviously, but they did reveal at that time that they had all been killed in the same manner, the same sort of modus operandi, and that's what led to uh, the serial killer designation and... Um, and I would. I remember that there was a one of the national magazines came down here after it and uh, did a story, and uh, they even dubbed her the 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 killer, a the streetwalker stalker. The crime scenes gave investigators some clues. There was the DNA. There were the tire tracks by Julie's body. The bullets all came from the same gun. There was other information too. Just before her death, Julie had written a letter to her boyfriend. In it, she stated that if anything ever happened to her, Smiley would know it all. Smiley was a local friend of hers, and police checked him out, but nothing came of that lead. Theories kept streaming in. Maybe he was a member of the military. Perhaps he was foreign-born. Maybe an outlaw biker or a cab driver. Or maybe it was someone who knew all three women and held a grudge against them. Well, there was always a question of, okay, how do these girls fit in together? And I think there was a time when people thought, well, if it wasn't a serial killer, maybe it was somebody who had wanted to take revenge against them. You know, they were all drug addicts, I think, um, or at least had problems with addiction, and mostly crack cocaine, and I think, uh, if I remember correctly, there was a theory that maybe they had ripped off a dealer or somebody, and that this was a way to take revenge. If the victims didn't know their killer, they still must have felt comfortable with him. Even though they were prostitutes who regularly got into cars with strangers, they had to think they would be safe with every John they did business with. That's why one particular theory lingered for a while. Maybe the killer was a cop. 
they thought it was good could be a cop at first because several of the women's friends the first two especially said that you know they would not have just climbed in the car with anybody they didn't know i mean the first woman maybe but not the second woman green julie green and so they felt that it was somebody that they felt probably comfortable with or that they had seen on the streets many times before so there, there was a theory going around that it could be a police officer that maybe had run into them in the past or um, DNA was taken from a lot of police officers. That theory never panned out. Larry Kelly is a former mayor of Daytona Beach. The 82-year-old now helps McAvoy review the agency's cold case files. He knows that his city is regularly visited by those who stay for a short time, and it's possible that the killer didn't stick around for long. You know, just if you take Daytona Beach, Malone well, used to say, the fact that you have just our university, I mean, real university, between Cookley University, Daytona State College, you have Stetson, just that population alone that's here just for the, their schooling. So then, you know, our tourist population is, keeps growing every year. Not long after the slayings, there did appear to be a break in the case. Robbins was in the newsroom when he heard an interesting call come over the police scanner. Yeah, there was the one night. Um, I remember it well. It was out by 95 when that was all wooded area. And uh, there was a call that came in that there was a, a car out there and that there was a woman who was allegedly a prostitute who was running from a car. And uh, I remember running out there um, and just sort of looking for uh, police and uh, eventually the spokesman at that time, Al Tali, he came out there and confirmed that you know, the person was a person of interest after they had captured him um, and uh, found him in, in the, the wooded area, but he was quickly, quickly thrown out as a suspect McAvoy talked to me at length about the DNA evidence. He spent his 30-year career as a police officer in Yonkers, New York, where he eventually served as commissioner. He also was a cop during the Son of Sam killings in New York City. Those murders were committed by David Berkowitz. One of the most notorious serial killers of his time, Berkowitz was actually a Yonkers resident and was arrested near his home. McAvoy did not work that case, but he knows it well, and he knows that any serial killing case is worked by a large number of investigators. After retiring in Daytona, McAvoy was invited by then Daytona Beach Police Chief Mike Chitwood to come in and review the case. Chitwood wanted a new set of eyes to look at the evidence. McAvoy knows that DNA is often the key to an arrest, and he is as surprised as any that the DNA left on two of the victims hasn't been matched to anyone in the FBI's nationwide database. But he explained to me the possible reasons for that. Why would his DNA not be in the file? Well, up until a certain point in time, a few years back, it was not mandated to, to surrender DNA. So if he had criminal background prior to the date when they mandated everybody coming out of prison with a felony conviction to get a DNA, he wouldn't be in there. Secondly, if he was in the military, his DNA might pop, not pop up in the civilian database. If he was a foreigner and he came in here 
we wouldn't perhaps have access to the DNA from a foreign country that didn't provide that to the FBI. That's where the DNA database is at. So he may not have been there, and he may not have been arrested since, which you find odd, you know, if you, if you, if you went out and you killed three people, that you would not, you would all of a sudden become a great person and not have any law enforcement involvement after that. It's, it's, you know, it's a mystery that we have to try to solve. Additionally, the national database, known as CODIS, doesn't contain familial DNA. So it is possible that a parent or child or sibling or first cousin of the killer could have his or her DNA in the database. If you can link a familial chain to that DNA, that would narrow the field of suspects to just a small few. It's a source of frustration to law enforcement, but there are some legal issues to consider. Applying familial DNA to the database, critics say, could rope innocent people into criminal investigations. We don't use familial DNA throughout the country. It's a hindrance because if you had access to familial DNA throughout the country, you could get someone's relative, like a brother or a cousin or somebody. Now, if you sat down and you had the ability to then speak to that person, you would say, but you're looking for my cousin Harry. He's just, you know, he's crazy or this one. But you don't have that. A cold case like this one, one that generates a lot of media attention and hangs over police agencies with great weight, leads investigators to try anything. Time and again in these cases, they go so far as to consult psychics. That actually happened in this case. Oh, yeah. I mean, when there's a case that's going on as long as this, you know, why not? You know, what have we got to lose and, and to try to to follow up on anything, really. There was a psychic that had provided some information. Uh, she even provided where she thought the man, down to the down to where the man lived. But, you know, I don't, I don't think that anything ever came of that. For a while, it didn't appear as though the killer had stopped at three. On January 2nd, 2008, the body of 30-year-old Stacy Gage was found in the woods off Hancock Boulevard in Daytona. Stacy was known to have a substance abuse problem. Like the other victims, she used crack cocaine, but she wasn't known to be a prostitute. Even still, Chitwood and others at the police department said publicly that it was a strong possibility that she was the fourth victim of the Daytona serial killer. She, too, was shot in the head. Her body was found somewhat close to where the others were found, but her death came nearly two years after Awana's death. Stacy's body was lying in the woods for about a month after she was slain, so all DNA evidence was destroyed by the elements. Her van was found a week after her body, and no clues could be pulled from it. She wasn't killed with a 40 caliber bullet either. While it may have seemed probable at the time that she could have been a fourth victim, detectives have since drawn a different conclusion. Yeah, the fourth victim, um, Stacy Gage, she, the only, the only reason she may, uh, they thought that she was possibly related to this is because the, the police chief at the time, you know, Mike Chitwood, who's now the sheriff, said that the circumstances in which she was found were eerily similar to the other three murders. But I believe it's since been uh, shown that she had that it's not related to the other three. Um, based on what I've heard uh, recently um, from investigators, and uh, uh, I believe uh, um, 
a reporter with a, a TV reporter did a story recently on that. I, well, not even yeah, recently, being several months ago this year, she did a story on the on the serial killer um, cases, and she was told that the fourth one is not really related to this, even though there was some sort some similarity, but the, the caliber of weapon was not the same. Um, even though there were some other things that were you know similar, but it's not it's not the same person. So Stacy's murder remains a single, unsolved homicide case, one of more than 80 that Daytona Beach police are working. Nowadays, the US-1 corridor through Daytona Beach doesn't have the same abundance of prostitutes walking it. Most times when a prostitution sting is conducted, the suspects are accused of soliciting or offering sex via online ads found on websites like Backpage.com. In 2006, prostitutes were regularly seen along US-1, also known as Ridgewood Avenue. It's reasonable to think the number of streetwalkers declined, at least temporarily, after the murders. But that wasn't necessarily the case. Maybe they took more precautions. Maybe more of them were armed. Maybe they were choosier about whose cars they got into. But most of the prostitutes who were known to walk the streets back then continued doing so. We did talk to one woman who, um, at the time, was she was kind of like a veteran out there. She called herself Queen Bee. She did not sound like she was too frightened. She she said that she had, I, I believe she I remember telling her us that she was she had a gun, and that she wasn't afraid. You know, she she kind of acted like, hey, everything's fine. But there were other women who were a little bit freaked out about it. In spite of the lifestyles the three victims lived, in spite of being murdered during the commission of crimes they were committing, police have remained vigorous in their pursuit of the killer. The victims were daughters, sisters, girlfriends. At least two of them were mothers. They had people who cared about them and never gave up hope that their lives could be turned around. And even though they were making bad decisions, they were well-liked by many. Laquita's closest friend had invited her to her house the night she died to help her cook Christmas dinner. Tragically, she never made it. Laquita's ashes are kept in an urn in that friend's house. Here are Kelly and McAvoy telling me how the agency prioritizes the Daytona serial killer case just the same as those unsolved homicides that involved local men and women who walked the straight and narrow. Al has always said, even though probably some of the immediate family is some family, they deserve, if we can solve that case, to have it solved. Long had told me investigators have always kept the case working, largely because the victims were on the fringes of society. Oh, certainly. I mean, this is one of those cases that everybody would wants to see solved because, you know, his victims are... Are women, first of all, that really, it's, you know, it's it's the kind of women that a lot of people say, well, nobody cares about those women. You know, they're throwaway humans because, you know, they're prostitutes and drug addicts. And that's, you know, that's that's one of the sad things about it, that, you know, a lot of these people will prey on, on, on the weakest, you know, members of our society because they think that nobody cares about them and nobody's going to miss them. Well, that makes it all the more you know, heartbreaking, at least for investigators, because they want to do right by these people. You know, they want to do right by these women, because if if it's true that nobody cares about them, then we have to, you know, we have to solve these cases. We want to help them in some way and put this to rest. 
it's something that weighs on them. It's, it's an unsolved case of murder of three women, and you know, it's been one of those cases that, yeah, definitely we want to solve it. It's one of the, it's a big case, and if we did solve it, it would be huge for the agency, without a doubt. The fact that the murders haven't been solved after all this time is still difficult to understand, not because of any apparent oversight or lack of purpose on the part of law enforcement, but because there was nothing calculated about them. The killer wasn't careful. He killed the women he had just had sex with, so he left behind his DNA. He didn't hide their bodies, and the victims appear to have been chosen at random. I am surprised. I, I thought for sure that he would have been caught, especially by now. Um, there wasn't... When it was all happening, it seemed like it, it, he was going to be caught. I mean, I remember, you know, at one point they found a car that seemed to connect somebody to the murders. And it just seemed like it wouldn't be long before something would tie this together. I mean, it just didn't seem like it was that sophisticated. Um, but I guess part of the difficulty is that these women were transient, and when those are the people being killed, it sort of makes it harder to discover the... Uh the case affected Longa in a way that few others did. She spent her 30-year journalism career at various places, including Atlanta, Tampa, Fort Lauderdale, Miami, and Daytona Beach. She remembers attending a media conference about the Daytona serial killer, during which someone reminded people that serial killers don't stand out. They tend to be secretive. They make a point to blend in. Well, first of all, when you hear serial killer, that's like huge, you know, because you don't get that every day or every year, um, really anywhere. So that's a, that's a huge story. Um, the newsroom was, we were pumped on that story because every day we wanted to find something new, you know, and, and keep the story alive. And it, but, it, but also, I found myself kind of wondering who could this person be, you know, because uh, we, we had a couple of press conferences where, you know, they said, you know, the, the average serial killer is not, it doesn't look like a monster or social reject, it's, it could be your neighbor. It's, you know, you're, they're usually people who you have no idea that they could be capable of such a thing. So I found myself as a reporter also looking at people, like at the grocery store, and, uh, you know, if I went somewhere, if I would see somebody, I'd say, I wonder if he's the serial killer, you know, that kind of thing. You start thinking, could this person be the serial killer? Even, you know, one of my own neighbors, I thought at one point, could that be the serial killer? The idea that a serial killer was on the loose also conjured thoughts in Longa's head about the Zodiac Killer, who killed at least five people and injured two others across Northern California during the 60s and 70s. That case also remains unsolved, but that killer wrote letters and ciphers and mailed them to the press as a way to taunt the public. Longa wondered, even hoped, she would get such a letter from the local killer, who was dubbed by some as DSK. You know, we were just want hoping that somebody would call us. You know, and as a journalist, you always wonder, you know, you see movies where, you know, reporters get a package from an anonymous source or they get a letter and saying, I'm the killer, you know. I was always hoping that would happen to me, you know, because I was always hoping somebody would send me a, a letter or leave me a package in the mail room saying, I'm the killer, you know, come and talk to me, that kind of thing. Of course, it never happened. Thank you for listening. Anyone with information about the slayings of Laquita Gunther, Julie Green, 
Awana Patton or Stacy Gage is urged to call the Daytona Beach Police Department at 386-671-5100. If you'd like to learn more about the agency's cold case investigators, Al McAvoy and Larry Kelly, check out my profile of the two later this week in the Daytona Beach News Journal or online at www.news-journalonline.com. Tune in next week where I will discuss the 1968 kidnapping of Barbara Mackle, the daughter of Florida developer Robert Mackle. The victim was trapped inside a man-made capsule underground for 83 hours, and her kidnappers came away with a half-million-dollar ransom, but were later arrested. My special guest for that episode will be historian and author Jason Vuick. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. 